Welcome to the Carnegie Moscow Center English Language Podcast. My name is Alexander Gabuyev. I'm a senior fellow and a host. And today I'm thrilled to welcome back Dmitry Trenin, director of Carnegie Moscow Center. Thank you very much. Glad to be on your program. And I'm very happy to have Anastasia Lihachova, who is director of the Hart School of Economics, Vushka's uh, Center for Complex Studies on European and International Affairs. Thank you for your invitation. Today we're going to talk about a very new strategic concept, the doctrine on uh, national security that uh, President Putin has signed on July 2nd. That's an overarching, uh, to use Dmitry's term, mother of the strategies document that really reflects very important changes in the way that Kremlin thinks about outside world, about the threats, and about the way that Russia needs to handle those challenges. So first, let me ask you, Dmitry, why is this document so important? We had a previous strategy back in 2015. Uh, what's new? Is it just uh, a new edited version or there are some really fundamental uh, changes that uh, the outside world and the listeners should be aware of? Well, Sasha, I think that, uh, well, first of all, you said it. Uh, this is the document that is uh, the bedrock of a number of other documents, the uh, foreign policy concept, the uh, various other partial strategies or sectoral strategies. So this is, uh, this is as you said, the uh, overarching a document, and uh, it can be seen as uh, a set of guidelines, not only for national security in the traditional, rather narrow sense, but in a much broader sense. And it, it, it really covers uh, almost the entire ground of uh, public policy. That's why it's important. Now, how different this uh, document is from the 2015 version in many ways. Uh, one way in which I see it as very different is that it very clearly lays emphasis, and I think that's absolutely correct, lays emphasis on domestic stuff, on what happens, what might happen within the country, rather than being some sort of a, of, of another foreign policy concept, um, uh, prepared by the Kremlin. Uh, that I think is, is, is important. That is an, an insight which I find, uh, very correct. Uh, and I also, uh, would say that although the previous document was, uh, published in 2015, uh, a few months after the, uh, Crimea, uh, crisis or Ukraine crisis, uh, wrecked Russia's relations with the West, at that time there was still some sort of a hope that the relationship could somehow be fixed. I think that uh, and it's very it very clearly comes through uh, in the text of the document, there are no hopes, there is deep pessimism with regard to the future of Russia's relations with the West. And if you look at the list of uh, priority uh, partners for collaboration, the West is very much down the line, down the list. Uh, that, I think, is very important. And the third element, which I believe is uh, 
uh, is is salient is the uh, um, emphasis on spiritual, moral, uh, ideological, they don't call it ideological, but let's say uh, also ideological issues, something that is emerging as an important element of Russia's domestic and to a, to a degree also its foreign policy. So these are the three elements. There are more because the text is, uh, is very long. It's um, uh, 44 pages. Uh, but these three stand out to me. Thanks, Mitri. Is it really a document that outlines strategy, that communicates intentions and the understanding of uh, the Kremlin's view of the outside world? Is it something that Russia really will act upon? So how really important it is? Because the national security strategy in the U.S. really lays out conceptual approach uh, of a given administration to foreign policy and national security affairs. Uh, here, how much it's really something that the Kremlin will act upon, or is it just a more bureaucratic document? So we are entering a new political cycle. Uh, we need a document. We put it forward. Well, uh, first of all, I wouldn't idealize uh, American documents. They're also bureaucratic documents. And uh, a document like this one, National Security Strategy, is not something like uh, a work manual. You know, it sits on the shelf of a, of a top bureaucrat's, um, uh, in a top bureaucrat's office. And uh, whenever there's a, there's, there's a new situation, whenever there's a crisis, he just reaches out for that piece of paper and looks at page or whatever and, uh, and has his uh, uh, moves already uh, written uh, down in that document adopted several years ago. Uh, it doesn't work that way. It, it, it is a, a, a conceptual, ideological, political document, which I think to a degree uh, reflects the, uh, the basic thinking of the uh, top leadership. But it's also a bureaucratic document. Certain things have to be there. For example, uh, it is a tradition of Russian documents of that kind to put relations with former Soviet republics at the top of the list of Russia's foreign policy. They never were at the top of the list of Russia's foreign policy, but it was politically important to put them there, and uh, they stayed there. So... Uh, I would say that yes, it uh, it, it certainly reflects the uh, the dominant thinking, uh, the concepts that the leadership believes should be reflected there. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, it's not uh, a guide, a practical guide to policies in given situations, and uh, as such, uh, it's certainly unusable. But uh, it's it's a useful document for an analyst to uh, see which way the wind is blowing, to see which uh, issues are important for the government, uh, the government writ large, meaning the Kremlin. But uh, we need to uh, to understand that uh, documents of this kind are prepared by uh, a fairly, although it's, it's a small circle that is uh, practically involved, but but. Uh, a lot of things are fed into this document from various uh, sections of the sprawling Russian government uh, bureaucracy, and they reflect the bureaucratic priorities. They reflect bureaucratic thinking. So it's uh, you know it's a document like like any other 
bureaucratic document of that kind. Uh, Anastasia, if we look at where the wind is blowing uh, in the national security strategy, I see one very new direction, and that's environment and climate change. That wasn't really high on the priority list in the previous in any of the previous documents of that kind, and I think that it takes a pretty prominent uh, place here. So why is that change? And uh, do you think that all of the big challenges of the uh, 21st century, like you really listen to Biden administration, you also listen to Xi Jinping in China, and I think that uh, climate change is very high on their priority list. So is it Russia moving with the rest of the great powers and with the rest of the world? Uh, does it have a sufficient coverage in the national strategy? What's your view? Well, uh, first of all, I honestly think that it's great that climate is finally in our very, uh, the most important strategic document, climate, environment, ecological uh, protection, because various formulations are used, are applied in the strategy. And uh, to be honest, climate is not the most popular one, but that's great that it's there because for pretty long period of time by some really unclear coincidence uh, of circumstances in Russia, uh, almost not anti-climate change philosophy, but the idea that climate change will be good for Russia because uh, it's cold and when it's getting a bit hotter, it will be nice weather and we will produce lots of uh, wine. But uh, very soon it became absolutely clear that for our country, climate change um, of course, provides some uh, possible benefits, for especially for some particular regions in southern Siberia, for example. But for most of the regions, especially in the extreme north, in the far east, in the extreme in the south regions, uh, where the agriculture is the top issue, climate change is a real uh, source of threats. Threats not just of environmental character that we see now in the far east uh, with a new, new ammo flood, but um, uh, threats uh, of economic character, of sustainability of uh, local uh, communities, and so far so on. If we speak about extreme north, uh, we had a very interesting talk recently with Russian business that works in the Arctic, and for our, on our question, uh, so what you consider as the most important risk for uh, from climate change in the Arctic for your operation in the Arctic? The top answer was physical risks. So not just particular risks and taxes or uh, extra regulation, but physical risks. They are afraid that their factories that were built here decades ago, they can just crack. Yeah, I think I think that was very visible during the last year's collapse of some structures uh, operated by Norilsk Nickel. Uh, and to me, frankly, that was a big aha moment for the Kremlin too, because if the permafrost starts to be more shaky and fluid uh, that really endangers a lot of physical security of the buildings and structures including a lot of toxic waste that's stored there and uh, many other items absolutely and for uh, russia arctic is a much more important region for most of other arctic countries by its share in gdp its share in population living there by its share in mineral resources concentrated in the extreme north so uh, the fact that it's finally acknowledged that climate is important, that climate change is here. We have to adopt, or we have to uh, develop uh, new monitoring, Arctic, uh, not just Arctic, like environmental big data. That's great, honestly. Even if 30% uh, of these intentions could happen in the coming years, it will be 
critically different uh, environment for adaptation to climate change that we had like 10 years ago or even five years ago. And for business, for uh, development institutions, I think uh, that uh, the fact that uh, environmental block is in the strategy, it's even behind uh, the international block itself. Um, it's a very good signal that they can uh, really develop it. They can develop green finance, they can develop new uh, taxonomy and so far. So, so many, many issues related to this fact, especially because the previous programs, uh, national water program, uh, sorry, water strategy of Russia that was operational till 2020, other national projects, uh, well, in fact, um, it's very hard to say that they were successful. So we need some impetus here. And if the strategy has a chance to contribute to this impetus, I think it's great. So it's really good that the mother of the strategies now covers those issues and they hopefully can be uh, instrumentalized in updated versions of not only the military doctrine or the foreign policy strategy, but also documents like water strategy that really contribute to overall national security. And I think that uh, the outside powers also see Russia as paying more attention as we record this episode John Kerry, uh, Joe Biden's uh, special envoy on climate change, is in Moscow talking to Sergey Lavrov, to Anatoly Chubais, and to many other senior people uh, in the government. So it looks like uh, the Americans at least are trying to uh, see Russia as one of the major uh, players here that is in top four of contributing to the greenhouse gas emissions and uh, something something is moving. Uh, but uh, you mentioned that uh, the climate change and other like environmental challenges has been there. And uh, you uh, in Vishka talk to businesses that reflect upon that this is a challenge, but it hasn't been reflected in the strategy before. Uh, how inclusive is the process of drafting this strategies uh, overall? Like Mitri mentioned that it's a more bureaucratic uh, document with a lot of uh, input from the outside. But uh, do you sense there is a palpable discussion in Russia on uh, what constitutes national security interests and that's reflected in the document or it's more kind of view of a smallish group that sits in the Kremlin order on Stara Ploshit? Uh, well, uh, continuing the previous question, particularly regarding the climate block, environmental block, I'm sure that there was a pretty multi-stakeholder discussion here. Of course, the person that uh, fixes all the positions there, well, there may be few of them, but it's normal for that kind of documents. But uh, if we speak about environmental block or other new blocks, I think the situation more or less the same. We have very active special advisor of president who is responsible for climate issues. We have very strong climate and environment related block in the government directed by Victoria Bramchenko. We had uh, lots of talks of different levels at the recent St. Petersburg Economic Forum, where I would say almost one third of all the talks was dedicated to green ESG, and sustainable climate issues. So plus we have discussions at the um, communities of um, Russian uh, producers and, and entrepreneurs. So I would say that for some new blocks, the discussion was pretty multi-layered and uh, many um, stakeholders put lots of efforts to persuade that the for example, environmental issue is a real threat. Why it's so important? Because if um, in Russia you want to get some support for some project, some idea, some big issue to develop, to get some funds, to get some support, 
you need uh, to that uh, some people would consider this issue as a potential threat because if we want to uh, protect uh, to, to decrease the level of danger because of the threat, you can get support much easier than just persuading that it's a great opportunity. Uh, most of our strategic thinking is threat-focused, not uh, opportunity-focused. That's a brilliant and I think a very sad and a very realistic formula that uh, opportunities don't inspire the decision-makers as much as threats and challenges. And when you frame an issue not as a development issue, but as a mitigating it, a threat, uh, then you get the resources and attention of the senior decision maker. Uh, well, yes, uh, I think uh, that could be partially explained by many reasons, but realistic ap- approach uh, to international system. But uh, looking at the pre- presented strategy where we have eight major directions, eight major goals, that is, in fact, really a lot. Usually we ha- we, in 2009, we had three, then we had six, and now we have eight. So to be honest, even for at the personal level, it's pretty hard to mention. So I have eight key priorities, one, two, three, four. So at the number six or seven, you probably get a bit misled. But uh, it reflects that uh, many stakeholders, many uh, parties were involved in the preparation of this strategy. Those who are responsible for international cooperation or negotiations, the ones who are responsible for national projects and national programs and goals, number one, is completely dedicated to this issue as well as goals related to technological update and um, uh, new uh, economic uh, uh, modernization. Uh, of course, uh, military and security blocks that is pretty multifaced uh, was there and some goals like goal number two, goals number five, they, they are, uh, they were, uh, they are the results of um, pretty intense work and uh, bureaucratic negotiations, I would say. As for new issues related to values, uh, well, we have heard this discourse for a pretty long time, and I think that it's mostly the issue that comes from parliamentary level. I think that what's absent uh, in discussion on threats and challenges, and uh, I would be very uh, interested to hear your thoughts, Mitri, uh, it would be surprising if I don't bring up China, so I need to do that, and I will do that. Uh, China is mentioned as a strategic partner. It's mentioned as a, one of the drivers in change of the international environment. But the impact of the growing rivalry between China and the U.S. is hardly discussed in detail, although the document is 44 pages long. Uh, and that's one of the key and defining features of the early decades of the 21st century, though that's barely uh, touched. And then uh, the document doesn't go into challenges that are presented by China's rise for Russia's long-term uh, interests at all. Uh, so my question to you, Dmitry, is, uh, is that, that the Kremlin doesn't see those risks or these risks don't exist and it's just uh, me and some other analysts are overly concerned about it? 
or is just the document insincere and for some political reasons of this entente uh, with China, we prefer not to talk about any risks associated with uh, uh, China's rise or increasingly nationalist and increasingly assertive uh, foreign policy of China, particularly under Xi Jinping, and just focus on the West that wants to keep its hegemony and prevents the establishment of multipolar world. Well, in my view, uh, China is certainly not ignored, uh, but it's not uh, named in, in some of the areas where it's... Uh, where dependence on China could be a national security issue. Uh, the national security strategy talks about the need to uh, reduce dependence on, um, on, on, on foreign countries, foreign powers, foreign suppliers in a number of areas, from finance to technology to, you know, uh, you don't have to specifically say, and China too. Because that would be you will you will not gain anything by naming China. Uh, you could uh, well, I wouldn't say damage the relationship, but this this will not be helpful. But it's clear again. You use uh, documents like this. Use a bureaucratic language, and uh, within the bureaucracy, there is a fairly widespread um, uh, call it consensus. That any depend any critical dependence on any outside power is a risk. China is treated as a great power that it is. It is also treated as a. It doesn't. The document doesn't say that because the document doesn't use the word superpower. But everyone involved in the national security affairs understands that China, alongside the United States are the two uh, superpowers of the 21st century. So being dependent on uh, China is certainly not Russia's goal, but you don't have to spell it out uh, completely, clearly, uh, every step of the way. Those who, uh, those who know do know. Those who are, um, are tasked with uh, keeping uh, the, uh, the technology uh, technological sphere of Russia, the economic sphere of Russia, the uh, the uh, financial sphere of Russia, uh, let's say manageable, i.e. relatively free of uh, uh, critical dependence on any outside player. They all know about that. But these documents, as, as I mentioned before, uh, are also, because this is a public document, and the public document has to be a bit diplomatic. And this is diplomacy, nothing else but diplomacy. So I don't, I don't think that people are blind to the dangers or risks, rather. On the other hand, uh, the exalted uh, fears of, uh, uh, of China are absent from the minds of uh, the Russian leaders, as I understand it. They uh, believe that China at this point has uh, other things to worry about, that uh, China may be assertive and, uh, and disruptive in certain ways. But uh, it, at this point, it still knows or still feels uh, what are the uh, limits not to be crossed when it uh, deals with Russia. When China uh, oversteps those limits, as some Chinese officials and others occasionally do, messages are sent to Beijing uh, in, a, in a very careful way, 
but those messages, as I understand, are being received. So I don't think that there's an exalted fear, but there's certainly uh, uh, a, a deep understanding of the risks of any critical dependence on any foreign power. This document uh, comes from the National Security Council, or officially known as the Security Council of the Russian Federation. And this is not um, a group of uh, naive people or people who have uh, special affinities toward this country or that country. Uh, these people have a, a very, let's say, hard look. Normally, they've developed a very hard look at, uh, at the entire outside world. They're looking for trouble. They're looking for risks. They're looking for dangers and threats. And they do not give anyone, including China, a free pass. But they don't have to display it uh, every step of the way. Thank you. Um, Anastasia, uh, based on what Mitri has just said and based on the document, I think that uh, there is a tendency in the national security strategy to prioritize technonationalism, uh, sovereignty, and independence from other major sources of technology and finance. And at the same time, uh, the discussion on the new trading blocks that are emerging in Asia uh, for example, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the Regional Economic Comprehensive Partnership, and the interlinks is not talked in great detail. So do you see a risk that the vision that is presented uh, in the document may exclude Russia from the important debates on the rules down the road for international trade and technological cooperation and will present a more uh, autarkic strain rather than seeing Russia's inclusion in the global supply chain as an opportunity. Sasha, I think that uh, this risk is pretty heavy, but not particularly because of these uh, formulations that we have, of the formulas that we have in the strategy. Uh, regarding the regional trade blocks, uh, especially important for Russia, regional compre uh, comprehensive economic partnership, uh, we observed this debate for, I would say, about six or seven, well, more than seven years. And the problem uh, is still there. Uh, pretty heavy uh, conservatism of Russian trade policies and uh, the argumentation that is popular now is that it's not because of Russia, it's mostly because of Russian partners in Eurasian Economic Union that have the same uh, voice, uh, the consensus principle, and that's particularly Central Asian countries that are afraid of uh, moving forward with uh, trade liberalization, to my opinion, sounds a bit ridiculous because uh, regarding uh, Russian uh, market uh, and Russian negotiational capacities, uh, this could be an issue of profound dialogue. The problem of these regional trade blocks uh, that you mentioned is that to even start joining to the discussion about them, first, Russia and its partners in the Eurasian Economic Union have to uh, conclude several lots of free trade agreements. And if we speak about, uh, for example, free trade agreement with China, uh, previous examples of uh, that kind of agreements with similar economies like Eurasian Economic Union, it's about 10 years of negotiation. So if in 2030 we want to get 
FTA with China, we had to start these negotiations a year ago. We didn't, and uh, I think without that kind of steps, it's pretty senseless to put uh, the priority of cooperation and integration into these trade blocks, uh, in the strategy or other strategic documents. Because without these FTAs, you can just be a visitor, you can be a guest, you can observe, but uh, you can't uh, overcome the basic condition, not unnecessary, but uh, necessary, but in uh, insufficient condition, FTAs. So without it, it's pretty hard. But it's, it's interesting that, uh, and I totally agree with you, it's interesting that neither is really mentioned or seriously discussed. Uh, as we both know, uh, so far, the Russian government doesn't even have a simple uh, computation model on what's the effect of uh, RCAP being framed. And then you hear a lot talking to business people in the field, particularly in agricultural sector, that it starts to affect their operations in China, which is now a major emerging market for Russian agricultural products, that uh, the treaty already does affect their business. So we don't have a comprehensive model on what happens if we don't join uh, the, the talks, if we don't have the FTAs with ASEAN and others, and neither do we have a model on what will happen to our trade with China and other major uh, partners out there in the Asia Pacific uh, with TPP with China or without China or with the US in or with the US out. So it's not even that we have done our analytical homework of what the exact amount of challenge it is in terms of uh, trade volumes going forward. Uh, Sasha, I wouldn't exactly agree here because I know that there were several calculations uh, and uh, some Russian Academy of Science institutions did it uh, and uh, RISI, Russian Institute for Strategic uh, Research. So uh, they do this computation. The problem here, if we speak about any AFT, is that just basic uh, computer, uh, computer, uh, computer analysis, basic model, uh, would probably wouldn't probably a good argument because without uh, clear understanding which is deducted, without w which deductions will take place for years and even for decades, this is just analytical exercise. And to get these ideas about possible deductions, you need to start negotiations or at least pre-work for negotiations. What uh, the other side can deduct, what you can deduct from the agreement. If we speak about China, ASEAN, FTA, there were many, many steps to get the final point. It took 10 years, but particularly food and uh, uh, food uh, part uh, started in three years after, since negotiations uh, in 2003. So I think for Russia, the perspectives are very clear, in fact. It doesn't mean that we don't know what's going to happen. We know what's going to happen. Uh, if we really follow the strategy and plan to diversify our industry, if we want to export not just basic commodities uh, and uh, basic agriculture like grain, if we want, for example, to export, I don't know, coolidge, so uh, that is more sophisticated product, we will face very heavy barriers. Both tariff, that is more or less okay, in fact. We, we are not the only one who face them, but also non-tariff barriers. And to deal with them, uh, Russian Export Center won't be um, an enough uh, fighter. Uh, otherwise, if we don't really diversify our export, we'll be 
more or less okay not really nice with some problems with some extra extra expenditures on local lobbyists and local consultant firms but it's possible so if we really want to diversify we have to go to these fta discussions if we don't really want one well, more or less we can stay as we are just investing in some local marketing research that's a terrific topic and i feel like we are can contribute to the national uh, discussion on this. So we should record a separate uh, episode on this, probably closer to uh, Eastern Economic Forum. My last question on this, uh, on the national security strategy goes to Dmitry. Dmitry, are there any noticeable problems or risks with the Russian national security and foreign policy that are not mentioned in the strategy, but are definitely there in real life? Well, in my view, there's one thing, um, and it's ironic because there's a whole section of the uh, strategy that's devoted precisely to that issue. And the issue is the um, moral condition of uh, the uh, Russian ruling um, elite, or the bulk of it. And um, we know that uh, over the past several years, there have been a number of uh, strategy documents approved uh, at the highest level uh, that promised um, economic uh, transformation, that promised um, um, uh, high growth, that promised uh, modernization, and yet very little of that has been actually implemented. Uh, in my view, a big problem, and uh, daily newspapers uh, produce a lot of evidence of that every day, is that a large part of the Russian governing elite is essentially focused on self-enrichment, on uh, their own thing, uh, and not on the national interest. And this is a huge problem. It's not corruption. It's not, uh, 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 it's not those... Uh, petty things. It's, um, I think, the mode in which the post-communist elite in, uh, in Russia is, um, is in the mode in which it is living, the mode that it, that it uh, actually reproduces every, every day. And uh, you just need to look at the uh, qualities that, uh, moral qualities that the a national security strategy holds up and um, uh, that it extols uh, and, and compare that to uh, so many examples when even very senior people, not to speak of, of mid-level people, but even very senior people uh, essentially travel underfoot. And uh, unless we have a, a, a different... Uh, spirit within the Russian elite, uh, a spirit that is focused on the public good, uh, that is focused on bettering the lives of others rather than uh, continuously only improving the life of a single uh, family of a top uh, of a senior top bureaucrat. I don't think we will reach uh, the goals that have been rightly uh, uh, formulated in the national security strategy. So that is one thing, but I believe it's a very big thing. 
Thank you so much, Mitri. That's uh, I have to agree. It's very sobering. You write about this in your book, uh, and you write this about uh, about this in your latest analysis on the national security strategy. And I encourage all the listeners to uh, to read it carefully. Thank you so much, Anastasia and Mitri. I think that we covered a lot of ground. We definitely need to return to many of the directions that we outline in the future episodes. Uh, the most immediate challenge uh, we are facing now beyond climate change, it's very hot in Moscow, obviously, uh, is COVID. So I wish everybody to be safe, to get vaccinated and uh, to spend a wonderful and safe summer. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sasha. And thank you, Anastasia. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you, Dmitry Vitalich, for amazing discussion.